but I think it's important to mention the main residence because often the main residence is the main asset of an estate. Something that I see often is that it sits in the estate for many, many years and nobody ever transfers it. And what's overlooked is the two-year time frame. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 311 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, we looked at investment properties going into an estate, a beach house going into an estate and what happens when you leave the beach house to individual beneficiaries or move it into a testamentary trust. In this episode, let's look at the main residence. What do you need to look out for when a family home goes into an estate and then to individual beneficiaries or a testamentary trust? Here are Amanda Morton of Morton Legal and Paul Golden of Vectical Legal in Melbourne. I suppose the first thing is that you've got the two-year period to transfer and you've got certain requirements as to who it's transferred to. Before that, when, when you're dealing with a main residence, it's, it's important to know who's actually living in it. So you can extend that two-year period of time because you might have a surviving spouse or you might have a child that's living in the home. And so if you've got someone who is their residence, then you can extend that, that two-year period of time. You don't have to sell it. You don't have to transfer it. You can hold it if it's subject to a right of occupation. But again, that, that should be stipulated within the, within the will if it's uh, ultimately to pass on to someone else. So Joe's died. He wants to give it to Jane. And Jane's uh, got her son living in the, in the property. Then she would need to have a, a right of occupation expressly set out in the will if that property is to be retained before it is sold for the benefit of the other beneficiaries of the estate. So if Joe and Jane were joint tenants, then nothing happens when the first person dies and then only when the second person dies, we look at the two-year period and any possible right of occupation. And if Joe and Jane are tenants in common, then, of course, then you come into potential for um, will disputes because some people might think, oh, it's my property, I can do what I like. But there is a certain assumption that the surviving spouse will be provided for. And the most um, pressing presumption is the roof over their head. It basically is that, that that survivors must have access or right of occupation of that house if it's not given to them under the will. If you are tenants in common, then yes, in theory, Joe and Jane could deal with their share as they see fit, but it will be very vulnerable to will disputes and the surviving spouse most likely could have a right of occupation for the rest of their life for the share they no longer own. And then this right of occupation, that has to be stipulated in the will. It's not enough that a dependent child, for example, lives in there and would be destitute if they were kicked out. It actually has to be stipulated in the will, correct? It needs to be put in the will. Otherwise, you're heading down the track of court and family provision claims. You need to put it in, in the will. And then, of course, when you're dealing with rights of occupation, you need to be very careful in the drafting that you don't create a life interest because of all the tax, horrible tax 
complications with life interests. I see. How is a right of occupation different to a life interest? It depends on whether you're creating a proprietary right. So a, a, a right that's real, a real right of real property, or a, um, say, an equitable right of some sort. From the tax perspective, the tax office actually have a TD out, which they rely heavily on as to life interest. And <laughs> I'm going to say for the moment, I, I just for the life of me, can't remember the um, the full reference of that TD. And I think it's I can't remember the year, but I think it's 14, slash 14. <laughs> but Heidi, I just can't remember it, and I should, because it's very heavily relied on. It's actually relied on by them in often in testamentary, sorry, not testamentary trust, in normal discretionary trust as well, and whether some sort of life interest has been created in, say, a trust asset. So, for example, where a property's been owned by a discretionary family trust, and say son or daughter been living in that property forever in a day and the tax office rely on their um, their determination very heavily i'm not clear yet how a right of occupation is different to a life interest i understand that the life interest is a propriety right and so then the right of occupation probably isn't but what exactly does that mean to exactly what's provided under the under the right is it only a, um, a right to occupy the premises or does it go further than that and actually give you a legal right or an, a, a, an interest in the property of some sort over I your see. time frame? If the property were the main residence were given to a testamentary trust, you could give the surviving spouse a right of occupation. The owner of that property at all times will be the testamentary trust. And the right of occupation, it's a direction to the trustee, but it is subject, in effect, to them complying with that direction. So there is nothing other than equitable rights that that occupant has to prevent the trustee from kicking them out. So with a life interest, you actually could rent out the house and with the right of occupation you can't absolutely absolutely and with the life interest if you rent it out then you get the profits and hence the tax issues whereas with the right of occupation once you leave you've gone you've lost that right you've got no more rights to mm -hmm. that property you have two years to deal with it so exempt from cgt because it was the main residence of the deceased, you have two years to sort this out. So for two years, you could rent it out and still qualify for the main residence exemption. And you can extend this two years if there is a right of occupation in the will. But if there isn't, then you got the two years and nothing else. Unless, of course, you appeal to the commissioner. I can imagine that COVID would be one reason why this two years could be extended because if you are in lockdown then of course it's difficult to sell the house <laughs> yes <laughs> may, may well be I, I honestly don't know what position the commission has taken on that I see have you ever seen somebody getting an extension of the two years yes so I actually applied for a private ruling but I mean you do you have to apply for a private uh, for a ruling you can't just do it it was a very intimate family unit that they sort of didn't have any assets going out they didn't have people marrying they didn't uh, mum and dad had the house dad died mum was there Mum leaves it to the children, the children live in the house, they don't marry, it's all sort of um, 
stays there and people kept on dropping off the perch and they had made wills. So then you're ending up with someone who's got one twenty-fifth of an interest under his sister's will and a, and a, a quarter interest under his brother's will and all sorts of um, peculiar things. We did it went for 25 years. We did get the private ruling. We did get the exemption, but it was tortuous to say the least. And we had to do these mighty impressive flow-tops to enable the tax office and, of course, the um, titles office to understand it when we were doing, seeking to do the chain of title transmission in one go instead of, you know, from every other person to every other person. Heidi, dare I say the cost involved, which might have been negligible if they'd done the right thing. I think one big issue with main residence is when you have joint tenants is when you have patch work families when you have that then i think you really need to do something because otherwise it just comes down to who is left standing because let's say peter and paul buy a house together they don't have any children and then peter dies and so the house goes to paul and then when paul dies the main residence goes to him into his estate and hence go to paul's family whereas if it was the other way around if paul had died first then it would go into peter's estate and would go to peter's family so it's very important to in that case make a will to determine Absolutely, who, Heidi, who gets if, it I, at if the I can end. jump in with a very close one close to my heart, because um, Amanda's recently assisted my parents with preparing will. And, and my dad's instructions to Amanda was that he wants a bimbo clause because uh, <laughs> his words, not mine, because they've seen a number of their contemporaries where one of the spouses has passed away. And then somebody has latched on either, you know, the young tennis coach or, um, you know, or as my dad refers to it, the, the, the bimbo. And this very big concern that the family property, say the main residence, might then somehow be lost to to a third party. So not necessarily only in a, in, in a blended family, but it's a similar sort of thing where the blended family come in and take over the, the property because it left, it's left to spouse and then spouse passes it on to their own children rather than the, the person whose house that originally belonged to, to or, or shared amongst all of them. And that's probably a really good example of where the tax benefits of keeping it as a main residence versus the succession benefits of placing it in a te testamentary trust, where, for example, you could restrict it to bloodline, become very relevant. And the weighing up, people might rather say, well, look, future generations might have to pay tax on it and lose the main residence, but we're, we're wanting to make sure that it goes to our bloodline descendants. Technical term is a, a mutual will, and you, in the mutual will, you basically prevent the other person from changing their will in relation to specified property listed in that mutual will, which may include that that main residence, and and very few people are prepared to spend the money on proper estate planning, and they just think it's just a will. But the number of cases at the moment. Heidi, that, Amanda raises a really good segue, if I might just jump into it. the importance of having all advisors involved in the succession planning. I'll give you an example of a recent one where the accountants and tax agents and financial planners had always treated 
some large commercial property as being owned by a trust, a discretionary trust. It's been owned that way or supposedly owned in return for tax and for investment planning forever and a day. They were then not involved in the preparation of the will. The lawyers that prepared the will went into a lot of detail and prepared a very thorough will. In fact, they did what they were supposed to do. They went through title searches and made sure who was actually owning the property and dealt with who that property goes to. And in the will, it clearly stated and the titles clearly showed that it was owned by deceased dad. It had never been owned by the trust. And now you're faced with a really difficult situation of forever and a day you've treated it as trust property, you've treated the earnings as going through a trust, but it was never owned by trust. And that problem might have been addressed far earlier if everybody had been involved in the succession planning. The only thing that I would add, um, Heidi, is just dealing with cases where you've got foreign beneficiary. For example, where you have part of a property going to a foreign beneficiary and you might have potential tax, well, tax that's going to now have to be covered by, whereas if it, if it went solely to a domestic beneficiary and the foreign beneficiary was somehow compensated. So just those complications need to be considered. Yes, testamentary trusts are great, but they don't work so well anymore because how can you tell whether your grandchildren will all stay in Australia? It's just impossible to tell nowadays. So I'm wondering whether testamentary trusts actually work long term, if unless, of course, you are happy to pay the extra land tax. Absolutely. So it becomes this question of, you know, what are you looking to do versus the costs involved? And, and I'll give you some really interesting examples. And I think it goes beyond testamentary trust. It goes to trusts as well. So I have a situation where the family were New Zealanders. Dad died in New Zealand. But by the time dad had passed away, his two children and their families were living in Australia and would never intend to go back to New Zealand. And the difficulty of getting a property that was by the, it wasn't actually even a testamentary trust, that was placed into a trust, which now had beneficiaries in Australia. And, um, you're now heading into 99B type questions as to if they wind up that trust and get the property back, they're go, you know, or sell the property, they're going to pay tax as income here. And it becomes a really difficult question. And likewise, you know, the, you, you find this more and more often where you do, you have the beneficiaries of the estate that are now living in other countries and the original country where the assets are, nobody's actually living there. And they're stuck in trust. And that's becoming very, very relevant to Australian where the children are moving abroad and have no intention of coming back to, to Australia. So I think rather than say a flat out, there's no, no need for testamentary trust, I, I think it becomes a real question of looking at the family and the facts in that family. And do you already have grandchildren that are intending to go overseas or have you got grandchildren that are, that are settled in Australia? 
the first point of a will is not tax. The first point of a will is making sure that you provided for the people you want to provide for. And that means actually looking at their situations. And if you have, you know, three children and, and one lives overseas and say one lives in Sydney and you live in Melbourne with your properties are in Melbourne, you might just say, okay, sell everything up and put that in the will. So it, it is very important to know what you've got asset-wise and who your beneficiaries are and what their circumstances are. But of course, if property is in a testamentary trust, then so long as you've got your control right and you've got some breaker, uh, dispute breaker provision so that you can enable the property to be sold and then everything cashed up and the, the trust can be vested. I'll give you an example of where it might still have benefit, Heidi, is if you've got an income producing asset in the testamentary trust and it's gone into the testamentary trust through the will. And there are a number of minor um, grandchildren. You know, you've got four, eight, ten, <laughs> depending on how many grandchildren. And you've still now got that ability to be able to utilise the income for their, say, education or whatever it is, and you're not constrained by the, um, the limitation of distributions to minors. Can you revise a testamentary trustee to exclude all foreign persons? You know how we amended all the trustees before 31st of December 2020 to exclude foreign persons? Can you do the same with a testamentary trust? It depends, if I might jump in. It depends. It depends what the testamentary trust deed allows you to do. And this goes to the actual drafting and a good will that creates a good testamentary trust. It doesn't matter how many provisions they've got in relation to what the trustees, you know, can do rent-wise, repair-wise, development-wise. What's the most important provision is the power of amendment. So you can have a trust, you only need, you know, five provisions. You don't have to have five pages of provisions, provided you've got that power of amendment, a broad power of amendment, and that is absolutely critical. And then you can go and amend the trustee. So for example, have a will at the moment, and the will was made a long time ago. So before all these, um, land tax changes and the like. So we would be wanting to amend the terms of the testamentary trust, but we need to obviously set up the trust first. You can't amend the will because obviously the will maker is dead. So you set up the trust and then you amend the terms of the trust to exclude foreign persons, provided you've got that broad power of amendment in the testamentary trust set out in the will. So do, is that what you usually recommend to exclude foreign persons in the deed of a testamentary trust? So mm -hmm. Heidi, we're, we're busy with one at the moment. We're seeking a ruling from the, the SRO in Victoria as to prior to the administration of the estate and it going into the testamentary trust. So it's currently sitting with the LPR that the testamentary trust be amended to exclude foreign beneficiaries at the same time. So, you know, and that that's not going to contravene, you know, the exemption from it purely going from the LPR into the um, into the testamentary trust. And could you exclude foreign beneficiaries on a temporary basis? So could you say anybody who is living overseas currently is, is excluded as a beneficiary, but as soon as they come back to Australia, they are a beneficiary again? Can you do that? Well, I say absolutely. It, 
it, again, I'm going to do the legal thing. I know there, you know, there are a number of clauses where um, we've prepared clauses similar to that. Now, why I say it depends is it depends in particular on the the jurisdiction you're in, which state you're in, because some of the states are far more comfortable with a, um, a clause such as that, which makes you non-resident as soon as you say a foreign person for purposes of the legislation. Often it's done by way of the um, foreign investment rules because it all sort of trends back to that legislation. Other states seem to be a little bit more pernickety about it. It's a very good point. It really depends on the state because, for example, Queensland only focuses on the default beneficiary. So lots of people can be overseas as long as the default beneficiary is Australian-based. It doesn't matter. Whereas other states, for example, New South Wales, look at all the potential beneficiaries. So as soon as a, a grandchild is overseas, you potentially look at a foreign trust and have an issue. So, it, yeah, it really depends on which state the, the land is in. Are you still there? Yes, yes, Yeah, we're absolutely. here. <laughs> we're agreeing with you, Heidi. How hard <laughs> So, um, I mean, I think Who Gets a House is a fantastic name for, for this uh, session. And it does depend upon whether it is a main residence or whether it is a investment property or a holiday home because of the fact that surviving spouses and people occupying the main residence may have rights, uh, which are independent of what may be in the will if those rights aren't addressed. And it depends upon who your beneficiaries are that you ultimately want to benefit and what their needs and wishes are as to um, whether they're going to want to keep that property, whether they have the money to pay for the uh, costs of keeping such as land tax and whether they'd want the property sold or not. And whether if it were to go into a testamentary trust, whether there would be that cash to pay for the land holding costs. So it balances always with what are the wishes of the testator? What are the circumstances of the beneficiaries they intend to benefit? And tax and practical considerations. Absolutely, Heidi. You know, I usually say don't let tax lead the cart. But sometimes, particularly in the complex environment we're leading into now, maybe it's a case of nobody gets the house. Maybe it's a case of thinking whether you sell the investment property and who gets the money. Because that's a lot simpler. Absolutely. Welcome back. So you have two years to sort out what happens with your family home while in the estate. But as with an investment property, make sure you don't inadvertently trigger capital gains tax, stamp duty and slash or foreign trust surcharges. In the next episode, episode 312, Scott McKenzie of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will talk about business co-ownership disputes. So basically business breakups. What happens if you and your business partner hit a rough stretch of road in the middle of all these lockdowns? Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.